Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Much has been said at this point about poor performance of fixed income, and in particular, municipal bonds. By most measures, we are without a doubt in the worst ever camp when it comes to year-to-date performance and comparable metrics. However, for those managing client money during this tumultuous year, the past 10 months have not been spent curled in a ball under their desk, but more so trying to eke out any potential winning strategy, whether that has been tax loss swapping or pivoting views on duration and credit. Regardless of losses, which are only captured if bonds are sold, opportunities within the space still exist as rates hit the highest levels in over a decade. To help us unpack all of this and give some context on how much sleep any of us should actually be losing when it comes to municipal bonds, Amanda and I are joined by John Mondillo, head of North American Fixed Income at Aberdeen. John, welcome to the podcast today. Thanks, Eric. Pleasure. So let's just get right into it. I'm looking at an article right now that you were featured in from August 2nd, and the headline is, Aberdeen won't sleep on risky munis despite recession worries. That to me means you guys don't have much you know, lost sleep at all when it comes to this sector. I mean, listen, when you look at market performance, <clears throat> there there certainly is uh, uh, a case for lost sleep. But I think when you look at municipal fundamentals, it's quite divorced from the technical factors that have driven negative performance within the asset class thus far. So, you know, while market technicals are something that have driven negative returns, and that's something that we really can't control at this point. We're more focused on the positives, market fundamentals that look extremely strong within the asset class, and probably more so where the opportunities lie on a go-forward basis. We can't control what the Fed is going to do. We can't really control where Treasury rates have gone thus far and munis playing a bit of catch-up. Um, but where, what we can control is focusing on where we think the winners are going to be and the losers as we enter 2023 and, you know, either in a recession or entering an economic slowdown slash recessionary environment. Yeah. I mean, do you feel we're in a recession right now? I've seen a lot of Twitter polls. There seems to be a divergence of opinion, people being actually technical about what a recession is versus how the economy actually feels right now. You know, I actually think it still seems rather strong, obviously, in the technical sense, depending upon which economists you talk to or, or, or financial talking head that you speak to, we're either in a recession or we're not in a recession, right? Two straight quarters of negative GDP growth. Uh, but that being said, you know, I, I walk the streets in New York and, you know, restaurants seem to be uh, fairly packed. People seem to be buying consumers seem to be uh, spending certainly in the face of of high high inflation. So no, I mean, you look at the jobs number that came out last week, extremely strong. You know, it feels like maybe we've we've peaked in terms of growth, but certainly uh, uh, not doesn't feel like a recession to the likes that we saw in obviously 2008 into nine and, and then the early 2000s. I mean, so you're noticing an uptick in foot traffic in New York. I mean, are you seeing a lot of Patagonia best back out on the street? It's August. I mean, I mean, it's the fall. You know, it's that time of year. Yeah, I mean, the Midtown yeah. suit is yeah. out in, in full in full effect in Midtown New York. Yeah. Um, a no little less metric. 
Yeah, a little less, less foot traffic, I would say, but yeah. certainly compared to the beginning year, especially, uh, it, it seems a, a little bit more lively in, in and around uh, the business centers in, in New York. And um, can we talk a little bit about maybe what this year has, has been like for you? Um, I know when I talk to a lot of media investors, they say it's actually less painful than like 2020 was because this has been happening over a longer time horizon. So what, like, what has this been like in terms of stress level and how does it compare to past downturns? I almost feel like it's, it's more painful in the sense that it's just been slow torture to see the outflows in particular within municipal mutual funds. And you look at the performance and, you know, obviously municipal IG is down over 11%. You've got high yield that's off over 15% and then taxables really a, a black eye in the municipal market at over 20%. And the year isn't even over yet, but yeah. So that being said, as I had mentioned before, we tend to focus more on the positives and where those opportunities lie. And I think that 2022, despite bad performance within the asset class, has really given us an opportunity at Aberdeen to focus on two main things. The first being, you know, an opportunity really to showcase some of our more conservatively managed strategies that you know, I've experienced significant outperformance as a result of the that positioning headed into this year. And then two, and probably more importantly, uh, is really a chance to re-engage with investors that, quite frankly, in a near zero interest rate environment that we saw, you know, towards the towards the midway through 2021, certainly prior to 2020. And then even in 2020, you know, where I think investors just had bigger fish to fry in their overall asset portfolio, it was very difficult to get constructive conversations on municipals and the asset class. Uh, so, you know, fast forward to today, I think, you know, current market backdrop where munis are at the highest yield levels in over 10 years, the, 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 the marquee index at in and around 4% yield. Uh, and then you've got, as we spoke about, municipal fundamentals, extremely strong revenues exploding over the course of the last 18 months uh, on the backs of strong wage growth, uh, strong consumer spending, obviously, and then the strength of muni local municipalities really buoyed by uh, real estate valuations, which I don't know if either of you two are homeowners, but you know, probably have seen significant uplift in your home valuations over the over the last 18 to 24 months. So I think all of those points and given the sell off and the opportunity that that has created has really driven uh, uh, those conversations and, and been a real conversation starter. What were the conversations like in the low rate environment? Was it just getting people to commit new capital, getting crossover buyers to get interested in the sector? I mean, because it felt like there was a period of like 12 to 18 months where it was just buy at any level. We just want to have the exempt income. It was that's exactly you. You 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 hit the nail on the head, Eric. You know, it's it's I, I think this is a high touch business and I certainly value that. I think clients do, too. And when you're in just this sort of hold your nose, indiscriminate buying pattern, which I think we saw certainly leading up to 2020, um, you know, subsequent to fed uh, fed and fed sort of fed sort of supporting the markets yeah. post covid in 2020 
there was just indiscriminate buying, I would say, in the yeah. asset class, which is, you know, from my standpoint, active an active portfolio manager, uh, it, it certainly doesn't uh, it, it doesn't bode well, and 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 it doesn't help that uh, that clients are just indiscriminately buying. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's so puzzling to me, and Amanda, I mean, I don't know if you're, you know, the folks you're talking to on the new side feel this way too. It's like everybody complained about low rates for so long and yeah. they swore as soon as rates go higher, we're backing up the truck. I don't hear any beeps from trucks reversing at this point. It's almost like crickets. And we see that, you know, with liquidity on the long end of the curve, we see that with, you know, ratios continuing to sort of move in an opposite direction rather than showing extreme interest. So that to me is the most puzzling story of the last several months. Yeah, I think that investors are obviously fearful. They're not used to seeing their municipal bond portfolio down 10 plus percent. Um, and then I think, you know, you, you look at the headlines around some of the geopolitical risks, some of the uh, so, so, some of the concerns about, you know, midterm elections coming up. And I think investors are just, uh, you know, a bit frozen at the moment. Uh, you know, when we look at sort of a potential for a turnaround and, and what the catalyst really is to that, um, we see it from mainly two areas, one being most obviously, you know, a, a, a slowdown in, in the Treasury rate volatility that we've yeah. seen thus far, and really for some of the inflationary data to abate, which we've yet to see. Um, but the second, and I think which is probably less talked about, would be something as simple as turning over the calendar year of 2020, putting <laughs> it in the rearview mirror, yeah. and going into a new calendar year in January 2023. I think it gives the opportunity for investors to uh, rebalance and certainly redeploy some of the capital that they've been put putting on the sidelines, really, whether that be in prime money market funds, uh, municipal money market funds, ultra short strategies, and or, uh, or, or or just buying T-bills at the levels that they're at right now. And I think one of the things that we've talked about with investors, again, sort of market psychology, turning the page into 2023 being one, is that if you look over the last 30 years, uh, there's, there's really only been four annual losses, 94, 99, 08, and 13 in municipal IG. And then I think if you throw in actually 2016 wasn't a great year, you know, post-election, fourth quarter was a bit of a bath, if you will. Uh, but if you look at the subsequent years to those annual losses that we had, we averaged over 11% total return in the year following that. So again, yeah. you know, th th that's what we're really focused on at the moment. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, sorry, I was just going to say, like, if you look at average performance, forget about like the year subsequent. I mean, you're talking over that same period, right? 2001 till 21. Average performance on municipals has only been 4%. I mean, it seems like we're primed to do that just from carry alone, right? If we have no more rate vol going forward. Yeah. I mean, look at a lot of bond pricing right now, right? They're they're trading at a discount in many instances. Yeah. And and I think that bodes well from your carry trade, right? I and mean, pure amortization should take care of a little bit of that if, you, if your concern is total return. And again, the benefits of the asset class to a tax exempt income oriented investor, you know, it, 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 it looks really attractive or it's starting to look really attractive. 
Um, you hit on this a little bit, uh, Jonathan, but I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about taxable munis since they're in this like um, bear market territory that seems um, very unusual for munis. And um, you know, a lot of people have said that this is just because taxable munis are you know, long duration, and, and that's kind of driving the decline. Um, but I guess I'm just wondering, like, this was like an area that got a lot of hype over the years, as much hype as there can be in munis. You know, every every interview for the past few years, people brought up taxable munis. Um, and so I'm just curious, like, your outlook for that um, sector, if you're, like, worried about taxable munis, like, what your thoughts are. Yeah, that's a great question, Amanda. And you're right. When when munis are getting hyped, it's usually negative headlines, right? So uh, uh, we'll, we'll take the positive headlines from time to time. Uh, but you know what? I, I don't really think it's been as bad as some may have made it out to be, especially when you look at taxable munis relative to corpse, at least. So when we look at high-grade taxable munis, they've actually held up quite well in our eyes, uh, especially at the front end. And then when we look at sort of lower grade taxable munis in that triple B range, they've actually outperformed significantly versus their corporate counterparts. So it hasn't been all bad, but you also make a great point too, that if we look at the longer end and the longer tenor, uh, you know, both, both based, based on a total return basis and a spread basis, taxables have, have outperformed significantly. You're, you're right. Um, I'd say that it's probably difficult to tell the reasons why uh, you point out the long duration co composition of taxable munis and of the marketplace. But I'd also suspect that it has something to do with a bit of selling pressure from overseas buyers. Right. So they've been large buyers of taxable munis over the past 10 years now comprising of anywhere from 100 to 150 billion in total assets from overseas holders of taxable munis again in a marketplace that is anywhere from 400 to 500 billion that's a sizable chunk of the market that is owned outside of the united states uh and i think when we look at some of the selling pressure that's transpired in the uk broader europe and even asia that's contributed to negative performance that we've seen in the asset class you know one thing you realize one thing you have to realize i think especially being a U.S.-centric, really, asset classes that when many of these pension fund or insurance clients buy into both U.S. corporate bonds as well as taxable municipal debt, um, they, they, they tend to hedge the currency risk, right? So with currency swaps and, and the cost of currency hedging at three-year highs, I, not, you know, I don't think it looks that attractive to them that it did probably over the previous three years. Who are these overseas buyers, right? We talk about this a lot, or at least like, you know, it's mentioned a lot. And I picture this like smoky back room in Singapore somewhere where there's a bunch of people just indiscriminately buying taxable munis. But like, I know it's obviously way more sophisticated than that. And it's like, I can never get an answer as to like, who are the big players coming from overseas? No, it's, it's, it's certainly more sophisticated. <laughs> I think, you know, you're talking about the largest, insurance companies, some of the largest insurance companies in the world, and certainly some of the largest pension funds in the world, both in and around the UK, broader Europe, and then Asia as well, uh, that, that buy into taxable munis for a lot of the same reasons why investors like the asset class overall, right? They like that there's an infrastructure component to it. They like that it's high quality. They like that it's 
long duration. Again, with your insurance client, you're looking to match your liabilities, which tend to be out a bit longer. And they like the diversification, I think, that it offers them versus the 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 the, the corporate corporate bond market. Um, I'm wondering what areas of the market, especially with the recession potentially coming, um, you know, what are what are you super cautious on now? Or just flat out won't buy? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, th- there's th- there's enough caution to go around, I think, you know, in terms of uh, in terms of where we're positioning our strategies, just given our expectation that rates stay a bit volatile, especially through the end of this year as we get into next year, we're certainly cautious on extending in duration. Um, you know, when you look at the twos, tens or the five thirties, we think things look extremely flat to us from a historic perspective. Mm-hmm. It's easy to point to the fact that munis or the muni yield curve that is looks uh, looks steep. I mean, it, it generally does relative to treasury market, especially when yeah. the treasury market is inverted. So I think that's neither here nor there when we look at it relative to what is typical of the municipal bond market, what we've seen certainly over the last 10 plus years, we actually think it looks extremely flat. So I think for income and oriented investors, we're cautioning them versus extending in duration, just given near term interest rate risk. Um, You know, I think in terms of sectors that we're cautious on, just given our expectations that you know, we're in a bit of an economic slowdown, although things when I go outside seem rather strong. Expectations uh, from our economists are at least that we enter a, a recessionary environment somewhere midway through next year. So we're cautious on, on sales tax related, hospitality and leisure related bonds. And then also in the face of some of the wage pressures, some of the some 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 of the jobs issues, as well as some of the supply chain and inflationary issues, really anything in project finance that has construction risk or issuers with large capex need over the next eighteen months, uh, we, we are certainly cautious on. I hope your sales coverage is taking notes right now about what not to show you. <laughs> listening to this podcast. Um, so you brought up construction risk, right? What do you, what's your view on projects that are just coming out of their cap buy period right now? Um, you know, is that, is that like something that has a red flag for you guys? Uh, I mean, at this point in the project, you can probably tell whether or not they'll be completed within budget or within scope. I think it's really the projects that are getting off the ground right now is where the real risk lies. So, the associate GCs of America recently came out and 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 you know just talking about sort of wage pressures and and lead times is that you know eighty two percent of them say they're still experiencing delays with any new build, uh, you know that's crazy directly yeah. exactly direct yeah. result of yeah. material shortages right sixty six percent of them are actually saying it's as a result of uh, on inability to get workers, both skilled and unskilled on the project. So out of the 1,200 general contractors across the country, Eric and Amanda, that were surveyed, 93% of them say they are looking to hire both skilled and unskilled. And here's the kicker, 91% of them say they cannot find them. So, I mean, there's a real issue with, 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 with anything with construction. What does that mean for municipal projects? 
you know, two things really. It's going to take longer and it's going to cost more. You you mentioned earlier you you you're sort of have the view that the housing market is strong and like you know by any metric, right? Everybody has a lot more home equity um, since the beginning of the pandemic. But every article that I'm seeing, every data point around housing right now is showing like a rolling over. You know, how are you guys sort of viewing that softening in housing? Um, and obviously, like look, you're talking about it coming off the peaks and rolling back 10, 15 percent. So homeowners are still like you know, quote unquote, up on their equity. Um, but it has a psychological component, right? And I look at it in terms of, you know, is there going to be sort of a wave of tax appeals in the following year if housing continues to soften? I don't know how you guys are looking at it. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a case to be made that possibly come back down to trend line, right? I think, you know, the the, the trend line has almost gone parabolic in nature, uh, over the last 18 months with in some areas a home appreciation of north of 30 percent so it's natural when you've got um uh, mortgage rates north of six percent that you're going to see a softening in the in the housing market i think we look at it less like into a 2000 really 2006 2007 housing market downturn uh and more just less transactional that obviously it's going to contribute to less revenues when you talk about real estate tax revenues from transactional business. But, you know, I think when you talk about people that are, that are going to look for their, for their tax rolls to, you know, to, to, to be less uh, as a result of that, that's not our expectation, right? So while tax, uh, excuse me, while real estate valuations have really skyrocketed, I don't know that that's translated to a huge uptick in uh, people's property tax property taxes that they actually pay. In many instances, there's a cap on how much the municipality can actually raise your raise raise your property taxes. So, you know, I, I, we're not expecting a uh, uh, sort of 2007 like downturn in housing. But in addition to that, uh, I, I don't think that. Uh, that, that we would expect to see those um, th th those tax rolls change dramatically as a result of it either. Yeah. Is there any um, sector um, that you're particularly excited about, like when a deal hits the calendar um, sector-wise or region-wise that you're like super interested in at this point? Even if you're not buying it, maybe you're just watching <laughs> how the deal does. Yeah. I mean, a lot of, a lot of what we're doing right now in the sectors that we're sort of repositioning into our sectors that we view as more counter cyclical again mm -hmm. entering 2023 which we think could be a positive year for munis but certainly a bit of a slowdown in the economy overall so sectors that may have been battered a bit uh of late uh you know healthcare to name one education especially charter schools even some of the the larger uh higher education issuers we we like headed into 2023 uh as well as on the investment grade side uh, essential services like water uh and electric utilities mm -hmm. we think uh we think general obligation bonds are still in a pretty good position headed into an economic slowdown so probably more on the neutral side there but certainly pockets of weakness in just general municipal credit uh obviously slow down in revenues expected Pension funding ratios are a concern, again, having fallen back to near pre-COVID levels. 
so, uh, so, so there are pockets of weakness, but uh, I think, you know, within that healthcare and education space, especially in some of the lower triple B rated names, double B even, uh, yeah. we, we see some real, real opportunities. One of the things we wrote about earlier in the year is that you know, some of the problems for munis this year are, were really self-inflicted. You know, one of them being like how bold up, you know, dealer firms got at the end of last year, just thinking it was going to be a normal January and surprise it was not. And then two, just you know, how the market has really shifted from a structural standpoint. Like in 2017, you know, 51% of the market was like 5% coupons and higher. It's now 30%. So there's a real shift toward like lower coupon structures. And I guess my question is, do you see the pendulum swinging the other way? One from liquidity being like still sought after and dealers less willing to commit it, you know, until the Fed is clearly done. And two, do you think we're sort of moving away from those low coupon structures because people got so burnt on them? Listen, I hope so. I, <laughs> I value the traditional 5% tax exempt structure. I think our investors certainly do too. We, we, we like the tax exempt nature of a 5% coupon bond. I was disappointed to see, to your point, a lot of the structures throughout late 2020, 2021, uh, a really good issuance year shift to lower coupon bonds. And I think when investors look back and, you know, maybe we're able to pick up an additional five to 10 basis points as a result of the lower coupon structure, you know, it was penny wise, dollar foolish, right? As, yeah. as, as we get interest rates back up 200 to 300 basis points, those structures got absolutely hammered uh, mm -hmm. relative to their higher coupon peers. Yeah. Uh, we have seen a couple of different structures thus far this year that, that you know, I think had hoped to get either new issuance or refunding done at a 4% or a, or a 4.5%. And they've just shifted more towards that traditional 5% coupon bond, which I think yeah. is smart. And I think to your point on a go forward basis, I wouldn't expect to see such a large percentage of new issuance uh, in 2023, certainly in that, uh, in that lower coupon structure. And what about dealer liquidity? I mean, do you think they're, they're just sort of, you know, they got burnt, they're not willing to sort of go back. I mean, if you look at dealer holdings right now, they're, they're still sort of, you know, historic lows if you look sort of back on the Fed holdings chart um, of where they have been um, and certainly off the, where they were at the end of 2021. I think it, yeah, I think it's a new normal, uh, it, you know, certainly with the change in tax rates that we saw, it's not as advantageous for banks or for, for dealers, broker dealers to hold on to municipal debt. Um, I also think that to your point, they, they did get burned. So they're less likely to provide liquidity. On the flip side, you know, we've seen more and more algorithmic trading. We've seen electronic trading uh, pick up over the last 10 years in terms of the percentage of, of volume that's done uh, on, on, on a pure trade level. So I think that that's maybe made up uh, a, a bit of the lack of liquidity from the traditional bank buyer, but, uh, but certainly I think it's, it's more of a new normal than anything. What we would look to as, as, as something that would drive municipal broker dealers and, and, and Wall Street banks to be net buyers of municipal and get back to more historical levels of, of, of what they held on their books would be to look at munis relative to corps. I think they really, just given new tax policy, needs to get closer to that 
sort of 90% ratio versus corporate bonds before from an asset allocation standpoint, you know, uh, trading desks are, are, are willing to take on more municipal debt, which at the moment, you know, we're in and around 60 to 70% relative to corporate bonds. Um, uh, uh, and then sort of 80 to 85%, right, relative to Treasury. So yeah. at this moment in time, I, I don't see them significantly being being uh, being buyers of municipals. Let's talk about another new entrant in the market, um, which is muni ETFs. Um, you know, they've been actually gathering inflows this year, whereas mutual funds have been seeing large outflows like we've been talking about. What do you make of this shift into ETFs? Is it, you know, sustainable? And, you know, are we going to still see these funds gather really large inflows um, into next year and even beyond that? Schwab wants some of that, don't they, Amanda, with their three basic yeah. points? Yeah. <laughs> it's only a matter of time before we get to one basis point. But uh, <laughs> yeah, neither here nor there. <laughs> uh, listen, in terms of ETFs, I think they certainly serve a purpose. Obviously, this year, to your point, they've seen tremendous tremendous amount of positive flows versus their mutual fund uh, uh, counterparts. But the sense that we get is that some of these flows have been mostly into maybe a handful, three or four ETFs, mostly passive. Um, and from our standpoint, that could just be a bit of uh, a, a bit of a beta play, which makes a lot of sense, right? Whether you're tax law swapping, whether you see whether you're new entrants to the to the municipal marketplace, and you see how how much munis are off, maybe a little bit of a short term play yeah. uh, on the tax law swap. Maybe you just want to stay invested in the exempt space, so you get into ETF uh, as a result of that. Now we don't run municipal ETFs, but the investors that we speak to that prefer that wrapper, I think like the fact that there is intraday pricing. Uh, they like the liquidity that they present versus a traditional mutual fund, although I might argue, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not as apparent that they're that much more liquid, uh, but they certainly prefer the vehicle, I think, in some of the investors that have more model-driven portfolios. Yeah. I think reasons why we're not quite sold on ETFs as being an investor's first choice vehicle uh, to the municipal market is what I got at in terms of volatility that they experience at times during a market sell-off. So for example, there's an ultra short strategy out there right now that has yields that are lower than a money market fund, significantly more volatility, and at times trades at a discount. In a cash alternative vehicle, we're just not quite sure that that makes sense for, uh, for, 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 for that strategy in an ETF wrapper. And I think the same could be said when we look at ETFs, which in March of 2020, some of which traded at 20 plus percent discounts, um, you know, how liquid are they if you've got to unload your ETF at a 20% discount to the NAV versus a mutual fund, which, you know, outside of a, 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 a real liquidity crisis, you, you, you're, you're selling it at, at NAV at the end of the day. So again, certainly serves a purpose. We do expect to see future growth as we've seen thus far in the ETF space. But I think investors just need to be aware of the benefits and, and as I said, some of the drawbacks to, uh, to, to that wrapper. Well, I think that's a really um, helpful perspective to hear because I feel like that is one of the other areas of the market that is getting a lot of hype. And so um, it's interesting to hear about some of those drawbacks and i feel like that's an important consideration too well i think you can't really have a conversation 
and talk about ETFs without also talking about SMAs, right? Because they're also getting a lot of inflows, at least anecdotally reported into us. Um, you know, the bigger players in that space have reported decent years as far as AUM growth. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on sort of the, the rise of those separately managed accounts and, you know, how they're influencing the front end of the curve, really? Yeah, we like the separately managed account for traditional retail investors. I mean, the tax exempt traditional buyer is a buy and hold investor, long term focused. So I think separately managed accounts, there's there's the, the, the growth is is there's reason for growth, I'll say. Um, and there's a reason why we've seen such growth over the last 10 to 15 years in separately managed accounts. Our expectation is that continues to be a growing percentage of the marketplace. Investors that we talk to, I think, want all things. They want their ETF vehicles. They want their mutual traditional mutual fund vehicles that they know and love and are used to. But they also want to own the bonds in an SMA uh, in an SMA structure. So, um, so uh, again, I think there's a space for all three wrappers. Um, but, but yeah, SMA certainly, you know, have seen a tremendous amount of inflows from the people that we talk to, uh, in, in 2022 versus their mutual fund counterparts. Um, wanted to ask a crystal ball type question, which is just about um, muni yields, obviously, depending on where you're looking, they're at 10-year highs, multi-year highs, you know, where do you kind of see the year shaking out for, um, I guess, the AAA benchmark, if, if we were to look at the 10-year, um, which is at about 3 point, a little less than 3.2 today. Uh, Can we hit 4? Yeah. <laughs> I don't Woo. think we... Four percent, okay. to be quite honest, in at least in the near term, what we'd be looking for uh, in order to get to a four percent on the ten-year AAA would certainly to be almost even more so a pickup in inflationary pressure okay. over an extended period of time. So I don't think we get there in the next, let's say, twelve months, um, but. Yeah, and, and I'll also say that I think given the 200, 300 basis points along the curve that we've seen in yeah. benchmark yield uplift throughout the course of this year, we tend to think that the worst is behind us. Uh, that's not to say that we can't see another maybe 40 basis points in a move in the, in the, in the AAA tenure. Uh, and I could see that as highly likely over the next three to six months. But no, I, I don't know that we get to a 4% on the 10-year uh, over the next 12 months, barring, uh, as I said, it, 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 a further uptick in inflationary pressure for an extended period of time. Uh, and I think that's what we're looking for on the Treasury side, too, right? Like, I think in order to get to a 4% 10-year tax-exempt yield, we'd almost need a 5% 10-year Treasury yield when you look at historic ratios, right? So yeah. in order to get to a 5% 10-year treasury, I think investors need to be convinced that uh, that inflation is here to stay and that, you know, terminal rate from Fed funds is now pushing through a 5%, more towards a 550 probably. So I don't think we're there yet, but something that we're cautious on, something that we're aware of, and one of the reasons why we are cautioning investors 
to extending in duration at this moment. Um, wanted to ask kind of an industry type question, which is just, you know, when, when you started Muni's compared to where things are now, like, is there something that stands out to you as like the biggest shift um, within the market since you started your career? And, and maybe we should have asked you um, how you came into Muni's, but just curious about the changes that you've seen. Yeah, so obviously I'm, I'm not the longest tenured municipal portfolio out there, portfolio manager out there, but I'm certainly not the, the greenest either. So I've been doing this for almost 18 years. I've got my start at Fidelity, uh, shortly thereafter moved over to uh, uh, asset management business focused on closed then and open-ended mutual funds uh, in Alpine Woods, and then 2018 uh, moved over as Aberdeen purchased the uh, the management contracts on the mutual funds in the municipal space that I run. Uh, and, you know, even though it's only been 18 years, I'd say that the, 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 the changes have been most extreme in those 18 years, really from a technology standpoint. So believe it or not, you know, when I got my start in 2004 into 2005, we were still using in some instances paper tickets uh, order order management systems have gotten extremely robust compared to what we had at the time, which was nothing more than I'd say a glorified Excel macro. Um, and then I'd also say that electronic trading platforms have just, um, you know, been at least a, a, a an opportunity of last resort in terms of liquidity, both on the selling side and the buying side. So, you know, uh, Electronic trading networks like the Muni Center, uh, market access certainly have have changed things a bit as well. But yeah, technology. I would say we're not always at the leading or the forefront of technology advancement within Muni's, but we've certainly seen um, some of the benefits of it over the last eighteen years. So, every podcast we do. Uh, we like to ask some, you know, sort of like geographical questions pertaining to like who we're talking to. And you know, obviously you're from the New York area. So, you know, we have a couple that we want to get to. Um, you said the city's back and that's awesome. So we have a couple questions for those who are coming to visit the city. Uh, favorite tourist spots. What is a must see? So I'll give you one that's a little bit, a, a, a little bit out there and probably people that are visiting New York don't, don't do this, but I think the best way to see New York is to take $2 and 75 cents and visit the, uh, the New York's ferry systems. So I think it's on 34th street. You can catch the yeah. ferry. It takes you all in and around lower Manhattan up the East river to Queens. And it's just a great way to see New York from a different perspective, but also to see a lot of the sort of, marquee architectural landscape that new york has to offer um hopefully that's differentiated versus some of your other uh podcast answers to that question no i like that better I new york sitcom that. friends or seinfeld oh Seinfeld. <laughs> come on that's not even close okay i had to ask <laughs> um what's your favorite spot for a bagel in the city Tall bagel. I just had a conversation about this the other day with one of my <laughs> colleagues in Philadelphia that was up in New York for the day and tall bagel. And I was an Upper East, Upper East Side guy for 17 years, 16 years. So tall bagel on the Upper East Side. Nice. I'll have to check it out. <laughs> All right. And just to get a sense of who you are, Mets or Yankees? 
I'll be watching the game tonight, so that'll that'll tell you which which one I follow. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Playoff baseball, and I'm watching my team tonight. So uh, I can say the same. Uh, it's been a while <laughs> since the Phillies have appeared in the postseason, so uh, I'm pretty excited. And the Eagles are still undefeated. I just want to put that out there for people who are listening as well. So <laughs> <laughs> much better than my Jets. Oh, always, always better than the Jets. <laughs> it doesn't take much, though. No, not really. But with that, thank you so much, John. This has been fantastic. Really great conversation. Uh, Amanda, thank you for, uh, as always, you know, we'll catch everyone on the next podcast. Until then, thanks, everyone. Thank you.